Here it is, Rising from the Dead itself, episode 68 of The Film File, the film show for the living dead geeks by living dead geeks. So hello and welcome. Of course, I'm Lee Ford. And I think I'm Andy Meekin. Well, that helps. They've not got around to cloning us yet, but with our busy schedules, maybe they should. Andy, welcome back to the film file. How are you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm okay, I suppose. I'm a bit, um, I'm, I'm a bit out of sorts because uh, everything just seems to be weird at the moment. I, I, we are definitely ramping up to get ready to get back to work. Where I'm going to be dropping into the site later this week to see some of the refit that's going on. So I'm quite excited to see that. I, but I, I just don't know. I, I, th- I think now that the Oscar season is out the way, I kind of don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> it's a bit of a dry patch, isn't it, now? Because, and, and I did radio, funny enough, this morning, talking about cinemas reopening for, for the BBC. And, you know, they were saying, well, what big films can we look forward to when the cinemas open on the 17th of May? <laughs> Peter Rabbit 2 uh, and, <laughs> and The Book of Saw. Um, oh, but you can see Nomadland that is on Disney+. Plus and uh, yeah. Sound of Metal. And they've got, oh, okay, uh, James Bond, mm, not yet. Black Widow, pretty soon. So it kind of feels we're in this sort of grey area, this this sense of anticipation for cinemas reopening. And I'm, you know, I'm like everyone else who's who's a film a film that I'm, I'm absolutely giddy with excitement to get back into uh, into a screen. But yeah, it's it's I know what you mean. It's kind of a grey patch. We're recording this on May the fourth. So may the fourth be with you. I just wanted to get that gag in. And oh, you, you know, I, you know what my feelings are about that nonsense. I know, but oh, it's, but why not? Hey, eh? we're geeks. We're geeks. We're allowed to. We, it's like a passport. I I despise it. <laughs> However, where I was going to go with that is uh, the Bad Batches uh, landed today. Yep, on Disney Plus. I've not got around to watching it yet because I thought let's get this recorded and then I'll watch it. I think my son's already watched it. I got up this morning and he was already like halfway through. But he, he does this. He just jumps on everything as soon as it lands on Disney Plus before anyone else gets a chance to. The reviews have been pretty good from what I've seen so far. So uh, you never know. Next week, it could be our neat thing or my neat thing or even your neat thing. Who knows? So coming up on today's show, we've got, of course, all the views and reviews and the news. We're doing a deep dive into George Romero's 1968 classic, Night of the Living Dead. We're going to be talking about Nomadland and Mitchells versus the Machines. But before that, Andy, as you may or may not know, is, is kind of like he's the elongated man of the film geek universe. And he's been slipping and sliding to find you all the latest film news in this segment that we call Uncannily The News. So, Andy. What have you got, news? So you know how last week I did a bit of Marvel news and then you were like, is there more Marvel news? And I said, yes. And then we did a bit more. And then as I started to talk about another thing, you went, oh my, there's more Marvel news. And I was like, yeah, there is. Well, guess what we're starting with this week? Uh, would it be uh, some Marvel news? Lots of it. Um, yesterday, Marvel, who never seemed to stop wanting to surprise us and stun us with things, dropped a promo trailer for the MCU, which shows key moments from the past films before teasing us with about a minute and a minute and a half of what's to come. Some Black Widow footage, some Shang-Chi glimpses, and most importantly, for those of us who, be, who were speculating when it was going to happen, some clips from the Eternals, which I anticipate a full trailer is imminent. If they've now got like, there was about 15 seconds of Eternals footage, which looks beautiful. As, as so it should be. Uh, Chloe Zhao, Having watched uh, Nomadland, I'm not surprised. Uh, But we'll talk more about that later. There was an interview with Feige last week where he'd said that she'd insisted on location shooting as much as possible, including getting sunsets rather than doing green screen and putting a CGI one in. And he he said, like, I've seen the beauty of a beautiful real sunset being used. And you get that glimpse in the little clips that have been released. And I can kind of understand why she went for that, because it looks absolutely stunning i can't wait for the full trailer but then we also get the titles and the dates of the films that are all going to constitute phase four well this was this was the this was the landing wasn't it that we were we were all hoping for because it gives us that sense of 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 anticipation um 
again, Marvel surprised us exactly like they did with Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Um, they confirmed titles to movies, which I'm sure you're going to yep. give us, and as, and, as you said, uh, release dates. Yep. So, starting on July the 9th with Black Widow through to Shang-Chi on September the 3rd and Eternals on November the 5th, with Spider-Man No Way From Home closing off this year on December the 17th. That's, that's four Marvel films for the back end of this year already. And what I was saying... A week or so ago on the show was, you know, it's we're up to twenty hours, and we've actually suppressed twenty hours of Marvel uh, this year with 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 the MCU on Disney Plus. Yeah, so this is just going to be the year basically of Marvel. Then we go into twenty twenty two with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness on March the twenty fifth, Thor: Love and Thunder on May the sixth, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever on July the eighth, The Marvels on November the eleventh. Before leading into twenty twenty three with Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania on February the 17th, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 on May the 5th, and then the only one that hasn't got a release date tagged to it has a number four in it. And it kind of makes sense that Fantastic Four, the movie, is going to be the last film from Phase 4. It's all going to build up to the return of the four. Marvel's first family returning to the big screen, as only hopefully Marvel can do them justice. Fantastic. Uh, no pun intended, of course, which gives me the impression if, if they do the roots of uh, the first Avengers movie and then Infinity War and Endgame, perhaps Fantastic Four is what it all builds to. So we've been getting these hints. And this again, guys, this is pure speculation that this could be building up to uh, the Skrull Wars. Uh, we've already got Secret Invasion coming on Disney+. Plus. Could it be Galactus? Yes, please let it be Galactus. But I've got the impression that that's what it's building to. So phase four is ultimately going to be whatever's going on, building up to that the same way that we did with Thanos. Yeah, a significant amount of phase four is either multiverse focused with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange in particular, or cosmic focused from Eternals, Thor, Love and Thunder, uh, the Marvels, and even Quantumania and Guardians of the Galaxy. So. Yeah, of course, the Fantastic Four being the cosmic adventurers that they are, who also delve into time travel and multiverse aspects, they're significant in here. I would not be surprised if Galactus, looking at how they've threaded these together, titles-wise, a Galactus seeding through it and a Kree scroll war on the cards. So Marvel have also released very, very brief descriptions of, of what these movies are going to be so for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Uh, the brief log line is Marvel Studios Black Panther Wakanda Forever will continue to explore this uncomparable world of Wakanda after all of the rich and varied characters introduced in the first film, again written directed by Ryan Coogler. So it's not saying what's going to happen with Black Panther T'Challa uh, after the sad passing of Chadwick Boseman. What it does suggest is that it's going to be exploring Wakanda. And, and probably how the Panther fits into that. And then, of course, for the Captain Marvel sequel, which they're going uncannily by the name of Marvels, which is going to introduce uh, the Monica Rambeau character from WandaVision and Kamala Khan from Miss Marvel. The Marvels will feature Brie Larson returning to the role of Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. In this film, she'll be joined by Tayona Paris, who first introduced as uh, an adult Monica Rambeau in the Marvel Studios series, WandaVision, along with Iman Vellani, who will appear as Miss Marvel in the upcoming Disney Plus series of the same name. Prepare to experience it and fly higher, further and faster, and the film is directed by Nia de Costel. So this is really paying off that we are fully tying in to what's happening on Disney Plus. And of course, you've now got to see Miss Marvel before you see Marvel's. Bold move for a sequel for a character that we've only met one or two times. Did you just spy the little um, on-set shot of Miss Marvel this I week? I did, in a comic-accurate costume. It looks marvellous. <laughs> marvellous. Uh, no, looking at a lot of the costume designs for this phase, they are fully embracing the comic aspect this phase. Whereas like the previous phases have been quite close, but gone for like that real-edge kind of aspect. They are blatantly comic book influenced this time around. I cannot wait to see them as Marvel series and see how it seeds into Marvels later on. Interestingly, a lot of people were completely caught by surprise at the Fantastic Four reveal at the end of this mini trailer that went out. Seemingly, a load of people 
did not realize that this was already revealed last December at the investor presentation. And people have been spending the past few months discussing who their fan casting would be for the four. Including us. And I'm baffled how, I mean, and, and I'm not talking about your general everyday person on the street who doesn't really do comic books. I'm talking about some proper comic book related journalists and accounts who have clearly not been paying attention to any of the news that they're supposed to be covering on a professional basis. Um, also, some people aren't happy with that listing because Blade wasn't mentioned. So they obviously missed the announcement in February that Blade will form the start of Phase 5. So that'll be coming after Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah, you know, this is why they have to listen to a show just like this. We will only provide the facts on here. But anyway, that's a nice few years of films aided by the heavy backlog caused by the pandemic and the TV shows running alongside. It's going to be a great time to be a Marvel fan, and indeed a comic book fan. Excelsior is all I've got to say to that. <laughs> it's great. Can't You know, as, as we said countless times, it's just a, if we'd been kids now, this would have just been phenomenal. So on the other side of the path, we've got the DC Universe, and we know that shooting is well underway on the DC film Black Adam, starring The Rock. However, uh, they've added to the cast uh, the young rock actor, Uli Latakufa, uh, in a role that, well, so far is a mystery. But the, the connection between him already playing the young rock is, is an interesting piece of casting. What does that speculation mean? No idea, but I'm sure we'll find out very soon. Um, and on similar DC-related topic, uh, the DC fandom that ran last year was so successful that they're doing it all over again this year on October the 16th. Unlike last year, when it was a two-day event, one focusing heavily on the um, film and TV media, the other one focusing significantly on the comic book aspects, it's just going to be a one-day event this year. Now, last year's event saw the first trailer of the Batman, Zack Snyder's Justice League, and Suicide Squad, and early teaser sketch art for Black Adam, as well as various DC-based video games. There's no hints yet as to what to expect this year, but I'm going to place good money on with that will be when the Flash trailer lands and Black Adam tra full trailer will land, with a likelihood of there being Shazam 2 footage, because yeah, that will have started shooting by then. And also HBO Max's Green Lantern is very, very likely to feature prominently, because they are putting a lot of information, a lot of effort behind that at the moment. That's recently added Finn Wittrock as Guy Gardner, one of the multiple lanterns which they've confirmed is going to appear in the series. It's not going to be one Green Lantern. This is going to be a full Green Lantern core. And they're still talking about doing a Green Lantern movie as well. Yep, they won't be tied together because DC have kind of said that everything multiverse, so what's on TV doesn't necessarily link into the films. But you never know. They might change their mind on that because it's not like Warner Brothers and DC have changed their mind multiple times already. <laughs> and in other DC news, the J.J. Abrams and Tennessee Coates-led Superman film project hasn't actually scored a lead actor yet. Now, there was a lot of speculation that Michael B. Jordan was linked to it. But he's confirmed in a recent interview while pitching and promoting his latest Amazon outing. Um, and he replied to say that he's flattered that people have him in that conversation. It's definitely a compliment, but he's just watching it on this one. Now, it is possible that he has had discussions, but sworn to secrecy, as we know, happens in this industry. But anyone who's been reporting out there that he's definitely going to be playing the part of a different Superman. It's not confirmed, guys. Stop clutching onto speculation well we've said this before there's actually not been any announcement that it's going to be a black superman it's purely speculation no. based on the on the fact that tennessee and Coates is writing the script uh, and that's it so who knows at this time it, it we've talked about it it would be a bold and interesting move but it is pure speculation. So moving on to another subject that comes back quite frequently on the news of the show, and that's Borderlands, the movie based on the video game that I'm extremely passionate about the game and I'm not looking forward to this film. But there's been more <laughs> casting. Yes, more casting. We've now got Gina Gershon as being cast as Moxie, Cheyenne Jackson as Jacobs, Stephen Boyer as Scooter, Charles Babola as Hammerlock, Benjamin Byron Davis as Marcus, Ryan Redmond as Ellie, and Bobby Lee as Larry. That means absolutely nothing to me. Yeah, I could see you glazing over because these characters mean nothing to you. Yeah. These characters all have influence on the game series and are all really well fleshed out in the games. But given that the, these will be joining Kate Blanchett, Kevin Hart, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jack Black, Edgar Ramirez, Hayley Bennett, Florian Monto, Oliver Richards, and Ariana Greenblatt, 
I kind of get the feeling that unless this film is going to be six hours long, this is going to be too many characters, not enough story. And this worries me. In the game, it takes about 40 to 50 hours worth of gameplay to go through the whole story and be introduced slowly to each of these characters and get to know their personalities. A one and a half hour to two hour film is going to be an absolute mess. It just generally sounds like they're throwing everything at the wall and hoping something sticks. Even Mortal Kombat knew not to throw every character from the games into the first film. They cleverly just focused on a few key characters to draw people in. This is just overkill. And what's even more baffling is I can get that Eli Roth is directing it and this is how he makes things. He just throws stuff and sees what happens. But Craig Mazin, who was behind Chernobyl, has written the script for this. Oh, has he? I didn't really? know Craig Mazin was behind it. Because I know he's doing yeah. um, He's doing my favourite video game of all time, The Last of Us. Yep. It seems like he's, uh, he's the video game person to go to at the moment. Uh, but with his name on the script, I would have expected a bit more reining in. It might work. You never know. Some of these might just be literal cameo moments for fans just walking and walking off in case it spins off a, a free franchise and they get to explore them more. But it, it's getting more and more worrying for me. Mm. What isn't worrying, though, is the idea of David Cronenberg returning to the science fiction genre. Um, it's a tempting idea, but it's happening. In fact, he's got a big budgeted uh, movie in the works which has drawn the cast of Viggo Mortensen, now pretty much a regular uh, Cronenberg collaborator, uh, Leah Sadeox, who will be coming off the long-awaited Bond film, and Kristen Stewart. And this movie, to get excited about, is called Crimes of the Future. And apparently uh, Cronenberg's saying that he's he's got unfinished business with the future and, and looks forward to playing in that play pit all over again. Interestingly, Crimes of the Future was one of his um, early low-budget films I from 1970. I so. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he did, uh, before he, he moved into sort of low-budget uh, horror movies, he did yep. a couple, I'm sure one of them was called Stereo, I believe. Or, uh, yep. But yeah, I think Crimes of the Future was was a title that he, that he was playing with then. So it's unclear whether this is going to be a remake of the concepts of that film or whether it's going to be a new one because that film dealt with a plague that was caused by cosmetics products that right. kills off the entire population of sexually mature women in typically Cronenberg manner. Obviously being Cronenberg he will explore quite dark themes and social commentaries and I'm always excited when Cronenberg gives us film. It's been seven years since he last gave us a film. Yeah. And and his work with Viggo Mortensen over the past two decades has been spectacular. It's been yeah, he's found the right player. collaborator. You know, he's his, you know, his De Niro to Scorsese, isn't he, at the moment? So moving away from a great director, I'm moving over to one that's very mixed bag, and that's Ben Wheatley, who's going to be directing the sequel to The Meg. Yes, and, and it said before, who saw that coming? Because he was attached <laughs> to the Lara Croft sequel, and we don't know what happened there, but apparently... He's no longer attached. Well, Jason Statham has been speaking recently and he's gone on record to say that he can't wait to get to work with the film's director. In his own words, I'm thrilled to get going. It's been a while. We've been waiting around for the right scripts to come in. Scripts? There was a script for the Meg. Um, the right <laughs> director to turn up. And we've got all those things and they're stacked up now. Wheatley's great. We have a great shorthand already. We've got similar taste. I like his movies. I think he's a brilliant director. I think we've got a good shot at making something good. Now, I, I like it when a, a lead actor in a film is a fan of the director that's going to be directing them because it kind of gives some kind of, it gives a, a certain focus on set that usually channels well into the end product. Fingers crossed. I'm, I'm a fan of Ben Wheatley. Even his lesser embrace stuff, I kind of get something from. I'm intrigued to see what he does with it, because I thought The Meg was a great concept, but what a mess. What a mess of a film. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but there's a series of Meg novels, which the first one is based on. So there's there's, there's plenty of source material to adapt. So I've got a friend who's a, a massive fan of the book and has followed all the plans to get it into production for the last few years. So he'll know better than I do. But yeah, there's there's plenty of source material to find. I'm not sure which book they're going to go with or are they going to go with a, a brand new, unique take on it? Who knows? Um, now, with Pixar's next film, Luca, coming straight to Disney Plus for free pretty shortly, when this was announced, I did ask the question, what have Pixar done to deserve seeming disdain by Disney who don't want their films to A, get a cinema release or B, 
be paid for on premium? Well, it appears some staffers at Pixar, who are remaining anonymous, have also asked the same thing. Some quotes from them. Luca doesn't even have a premium price next to it. Does it make it lesser? It's hard to grasp. We don't want to be a title just on Disney+. Plus. These movies are crafted for the big screen. We want you to watch these movies with no distractions and no looking at your phones. So it sounds like this relationship between Pixar and Disney that has always been quite healthy and Pixar has been like the showcase for Disney and they made a big fuss that when Pixar were going to leave them, no, we need to keep them. It's getting sour. It's made even especially strange with Soul doing great numbers for the Disney Plus service and also scoring an Oscar. Let's be honest, Pixar films each year have scored an Oscar. It just makes Disney's whole approach a tad strange. And if it causes this much rumbling in the Pixar animators department, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some jump ship to other animating studios that give more free reign and more prestige. Yeah, it, it is an odd one. I mean, we, we tried figuring this out a few weeks ago. Now, if it wasn't for Pixar, then I don't think we'd be getting the quality of Disney films that we're getting these days. Pixar originated a style that embedded itself into Disney in some way. You know, it seemed like a, a symbiotic relationship made in heaven, but clearly something has gone awry. And it, it's it's uh, interesting to think to think what that is. One day we yep. may find out, but you're right. It usually starts with people jumping ship. Dominique Fishback, who was uh, last seen very briefly in Judas and the Black Messiah, which I know you've seen, has landed on the radar of big budget filmmakers. And she's in final negotiations to join Anthony Ramos in the seventh Transformers outing. With Stephen Capel Jr. in the director's chair, we know nothing about this one. We've been talking about Transformers for the last few weeks. We don't know if it's going to be a continuation of the Bayism or it's going to be a new start. I don't think they know at this moment in time, but they're making some interesting choices with directors because it's not Michael Bay, in my opinion, uh, and an interesting cast. It does seem that the more as a studio, because there's multiple Transformers projects in the pipeline, and it seems that the studio realises the response to Bumblebee was so overwhelmingly positive that they need to distance from Michael Bay's approach a lot more to move forwards. And that's why they're seeking out different names. And that's why they're not committing to, this is going to be a sequel to this, this is going to be a sequel to that. They're waiting to see what the story they come up with is before they decide whether they're rebooting. I think it's the wise move. I think that, unfortunately, that franchise got tainted. By the end of Michael Bay's run, it was a it was a joke of the cinema industry. Even though it was still doing kind of numbers, it had dropped off significantly. And basically, everyone expected it to be a mess when the new film came out. That's why Bumblebee didn't succeed as well on the big screen as it should have done, because it suffered from the after effect of Bay's run. But what a fantastic film, though, wasn't it? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It it picked up a huge audience once it got to home release, because the small group of people who saw it at cinema release, like ourselves, who embraced it, were telling people, no, give this one a chance. Forget what you've seen before. Give this one a chance. And so people embraced it on home release. And that's why it's taken so long to generate back up to new Transformers films. I'm excited to see what they do. I just need to see what they're doing before I'll get too excited. Uh, speaking of some, something that you can't get excited about these days, Bruce Willis. Remember when Bruce Willis was a big name? It's kind of funny you should say that because I had a conversation at the weekend about Bruce Willis and just seemed to appear in anything where... A, he, he seems not to make it through the entire movie, so he's got paid. <laughs> doesn't even have to survive. There's there's something quite terrible turned up on Netflix over the weekend, which is, uh, come on, Bruce, you at one point you were the biggest actor in the world, you outgrossing Arnie and Sly Stallone, and now you're doing these, well, basically straight to streaming. It's the same, same with Nick Cage. Something's happened in their careers where they'll just accept anything. But are you going to tell me that he's going to do something that is 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 going to elevate him out of that? Well, he signed up for a tr- proposed trilogy of action thrillers. Bruce Willis, Chad Michael Murray, Jesse Metcalf and Kelly Grayson. And the trilogy is going to be called The Fortress, with the first two films in the trio being shot back to back. Production's already underway. So this isn't something that is just vaporware in the future. This is actually starting production. The story is set at a top secret resort for retired U.S. intelligence officers. A group of criminals breached the compound, hell-bent on revenge on the character Robert, who's played by Bruce Willis, which then forces him to come out of retirement and 
basically save the day. So it sounds like generic action kind of things with a kind of prisoner kind of approach. I like I like the prisoner kind of approach, a resort for secret intelligence officers. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, there was a time that, that Bruce Willis was going down this interesting character actor, you know, things like Moonrise Kingdom, where you, you were seeing his acting chops and and, and not just relying on, on turning up and uttering a few lines and picking up a gun. <laughs> I'd like to see more of, of, of the um, the former than the latter, if I'm honest, in Bruce Willis. His recent output, like you say, there was something that dropped on Netflix. I know that there was Breach and another one, both dropped within the same week, and neither of them are worth watching. Because, like Shame. you say, he's he's just turning up and lazily lazily just giving some lines and then walking off. It just seems a waste of a what was a great name at one point. Yeah, absolutely. I was a massive Bruce Willis fan. Now, speaking of great names, and we're going to be talking about the name involved here as our deep dive this week. But the late great George Romero's fifth and final film for the Signature Dead series might make its way onto the screen thanks to his wife, Suzanne Romero continuing writing from his notes after he passed well i saw this and, and you know knowing that we were going to be doing uh, night of the living dead today apparently he wasn't he didn't see two of the movies as being his own canon even though he was he was behind them which was diary of the dead and and survival of the dead which i've never even seen survival of the dead i did pick up with land of the dead again i thought that was great and that felt as though it was part of that vision. Yeah, so this was this fifth film, Twilight of the Dead is what it's going to, going to be titled, is a script that he'd been developing for a good few years, picking up ideas that he'd already planted throughout the series. And he'd been working with uh, Paolo Zelati before he passed away, sadly, in 2017. Uh, Zelati approached Suzanne and said, can we continue writing this? Because there's a lot here that we can do as his legacy. And they've got two other writers, Joe Netta and Robert Lucas, to come and treat the tale, and it's now got a finished, ready-to-go-into-production script that Suzanne Romero is interviewing directors to try to find the right person to bring this final chapter of Romero's vision to the screen. Excellent. Can't wait. I hope it. I hope they do it justice, and they hope. I hope it, it, it pays homage to one of the great horror directors of all time, and we'll be talking more about that a little bit later in the programme. One quick thing from me. Uh, it's been announced that the mini festival Sundance London has confirmed it will be returning in person on July 29th. And no better way to welcome its return than with Edgar Wright's sprawling documentary and love letter to, a, to the band who've been with us for, well, for over five decades, uh, the Sparks Brothers, which is about the band, the Sparks and the two brothers who lead that. I've had an interest in this for some time because a, a friend of mine was was the bass player back in the 70s for Sparks. So I've known this has been going off. At one point, I almost got involved very, very, very minutely. But uh, again, it's just that promise of things opening and things things get going again for the industry. So hurrah to the Sundance Film Festival, London. And to round off the news, I'm going to flip back to zombies again. A remake of the low-budget Japanese horror comedy One Cut of the Dead is in the pipeline. Now, before the inevitable has Hollywood run out of ideas and why can't people read subtitles happens, this is a French remake from the director of the artist, Michael Hazana Vicious, and actor Romain Juris. The story deals with a film crew working on a zombie film who appear to stumble across some real zombies, or at least that's what they think. Uh, production's already begun on the outskirts of Paris, and the film will be titled Comézie in France and Final Cut internationally when it arrives. And I'm interested. It's a friend of mine's favourite film of that year. He absolutely raved over uh, One Cut of the Dead. Yeah, it's a cracking film. It's, it's genuinely funny, but also quite nicely low budgetly brutal and i'd be interested to see not only a french remake i'd be interested to see an american remake yes i'm happy for remakes because you know what if they can play with the idea and do something why not let it happen and that is the news if you're enjoying the show then why not hit that subscribe button and you can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts hit the subscribe button because every time you do you'll make someone in Hollywood very happy and us. So you can get in touch with us via, well, several means if necessary. You can reach us on Twitter at Filmfile UK, 
Instagram, Filmfile UK, or you can email us with any thoughts, suggestions, or just general conversation. Podcast at filmfile.uk. Please get in touch. We'd like to hear your reviews out or anything you just want to say. Okay, so you know, over the last few weeks, we have been doing a deep dive into some classic movies that have included Excalibur, Dirty Harry, to name just a few. This week, as we said at the top end of the programme, 1968, and probably for me, one of the scariest films of all time, George A. Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. I know you're afraid. I'm afraid too. But we have to try to avoid the house altogether. That's my point. Well, there's not going to be five or even ten. There's going to be 20, 30, maybe a hundred of those things. And as soon as they know we're here, this place is going to be crawling with them. This isn't a passing thing, honey. It, it's not like just a wing passing through. We've got to do something. And fast. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. This absolute classic of the genre and a game changer for the zombie movies that we'd seen before and for horror movies in general, George A. Romero turned this out in 1968 on, well, basically a zero budget. The story follows seven people who are trapped in a rural farmhouse in Western Pennsylvania and are under assault by an enlarging group of cannibalistic undead ghouls. I remember seeing this film for the first time on late night TV. BBC Two, I think, used to do a, a series of horror movies. It scared me to death. It scared me in a way that made me want to go and board up all the windows. It scared me in a, in a way that how would I react if this happened, because there's such a sense with this film of it feeling real, of it feeling as though it's happening outside of your window. Maybe it's the, the black and white that makes it even more grueling. Maybe it's it's the, the low budget actually working in its favour. Maybe it's the fact that all the characters end up to some end turning on each other. It's all of those things. And it's all of those things that have, have made it to be an absolutely classic of, of of all horror movies and one that because of that it's so influential right up to present day as we're saying with george a romero's latest script uh hopefully in production but the walking dead couldn't have existed without night of the living dead andy what are your what are your memories of this i was introduced to this after i'd already seen dawn of the dead and day of the dead and again it would have been from tv because i saw all of them via it must have been BBC Two or Channel Four, one or the other. But I remember because because I'd already been introduced to his progressive films and the more colorized ones. My first approach of Night of the Living Dead, it didn't have the impact that I expected it to have, and I felt a bit underwhelmed. Okay. That's However, nice. when I came to university, the one of the cinemas in the city centre of Sheffield, the Odeon Cinema, the the time used to do Friday night, late night specials of old horror films. And on one night, they got Night of the Living Dead in. And I got to see it on the big screen. And this was exactly the same as what happened with The Exorcist. When I first saw The Exorcist, I couldn't get what all the fuss was. But when I went back to revisit it with fresh eyes, without that expectation, it proper chilled me. And watching this on a screen really drew me in. And really, I, I got everything that was genuinely generally pushing the boundaries of the genre, but also the genuine chilling nature. You've mentioned the low budget and, you know, it looks low budget because of the framing, because of the way that it's made and does that benefit? Yes, I rewatched this the other day and that was one thing that stood out straight away is the the cheap look of it makes it feel like a home video. And so it yeah, makes this... it feel like you're watching found footage. And you, know, you could basically say that this was basically a pioneer for found footage genre that came decades later. Well, that's right. I mean, Romero had cut his teeth 
on, on corporate films, uh, industrial films, as they're known of in the States, and commercials. And he brought a, a guerrilla filmmaking technique to it. A lot of it's handheld. A lot, of, a lot of it, because of that, gives it that intensity of it feeling almost documentary-esque to it. So I, I totally get you. And I think that's one of the reasons it works. The, the lack of it being slick, the lack of it, and, and it doesn't, and I'm being careful on, on what I say here, because it, while it doesn't look slick, it, it doesn't look amateurish either. I mean, I've oh, seen no. enough Z movie, horror movies, which look like, you know, what they are. They're pure garbage. This doesn't have that quality. I mean, he's got a very well-defined script that he wrote with John Russo. Uh, and it, it, it's got it's got great framing. It looks like a proper movie. But that low-budget quality to it, that urgency that it brings to it with the low-budget quality is what makes it effective. I mean, he drew, he drew from um, a film and a book that we've talked about lots of times, uh, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. You know, that was a, a big influence on this. And, and it's and it's just gone on, and it's it, it it redefined what we think of zombies because up until then, zombies were usually people in some sort of either the undead that were just in a haze, or they were um, or people that had been uh, almost hypnotized into be as what was known as a zombie state. But we've never seen horror like this, and it is a visceral film as well. And being in black and white, you paint in the red with your head to a to a degree. Yeah, the black and black and white photography allowed it to get away with a lot more gore and gruesome aspects than you'd normally get in a horror film of that time, uh, because you didn't see the red, you didn't see like the color palette of any splatters or rips or shreds. You had to fill that blank in in your head, and it makes it work so much more. Whenever people say like, "Oh, I don't see the point in black and white films," oh no, 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 it truly gets the chilling atmosphere of this film. Uh, the single location of just a rural farmhouse helps create a tension. It's a, a, it gives the atmosphere. It gives the claustrophobia. We're in that house with them as there's things clawing outside. And it's the slow build of the story as well. Even though you're thrown straight into someone being killed, Johnny, the brother of Barbara, and then she flees to the house, you don't know exactly what's happened because all that you know is that a pale-faced man killed him. And it's as radio reports and TV news broadcasts intersect as part of the story that it starts to fill in the gaps as to what's happened and the dead are walking the earth. Like you say, this this used zombies in a completely new way. And it basically set the template that everything today draws upon. You look at everything from comedies to horrors to even just any any general TV show. There has been references to moments from the Dead series throughout media constantly to such a degree that even someone who's never seen night of the living dead will identify and recognize so many moments in the film just because of how often it's referred to and referenced in other shows other films books comics serials even soap operas have thrown references to night of the living dead which is bizarre it is i mean when the film came out it did it did very well on the box office especially as it was such a such a low budget of one hundred and fourteen thousand dollars, and it and it grows somewhere in in the uh, eventually around uh, twelve millions domestically and, and eighteen million internationally. But and the one again one of the the reasons, and you can list the reasons this film did so well, is it, it there was a initially controversy about it because of its explicit violence and its explicit gore, but it garnered a cult success and a cult following um, among not just fans, but mainstream critics, and uh, so much so. And, and one of the elements that I think I think elevates it, there's a reflection on social and cultural change that was happening during the United States in 1960s, especially the casting of Dwayne Jones, an African-American, as, as the leading man in this. Uh, and to have a black man at the, at the heart and the centre of a film was still incredibly new ground for, for America in the 60s. I, I don't know if you know, but the original script was written with, with the Ben character as being just a, a simple uh, a simple truck driver. And his dialogue was that of somebody who was just a, an average kind of uneducated guy. But when they cast Dwayne Jones, he, he was just incredibly well-spoken, very well-educated, and he simply refused to do the role as it was written. So... Dwayne himself upgraded his own dialogue to reflect 
how he felt that character should represent himself, which is the reason, again, that that character works. And of course, the, the way the ending turns out, you know, even now I don't want to give it away because, I mean, spoilers, it has been out for just short of uh, 50 years. Or in fact, it has been out. It has been out for 50 years, but it still packs a wallop. It did so well that it spawned a franchise that included the five official sequels uh, and a remake, which isn't too bad, directed by Tom Savini, even though a a friend of mine, quite a famous film director, stood up and walked out of it. I don't think it's that bad and and is as close to Romero's vision as possible and updating the the female characters who were were pretty hard done by in in, in the movie. But it still packs a punch. It's a classic, classic piece of imagineering film work that is inspired, as you said, a whole slew of media, and, and including in inspiring movies like Assault on Precinct 13, in which John Carpenter said, without Night of the Living Dead, there would have never been Assault on Precinct 13. You know, the, the, the faceless hordes that, that are attacking a, a one location. Yeah. Right up to things like the Evil Dead, people trapped in that solitary confinement of, of, of one set, which just makes it very, very claustrophobic. The parallels with Evil Dead are very significant because that first film by Sam Raimi, similar to this film, was low budget and looks quite kind of cheap, but the cheapness benefits the actual film. Uh, I rewatched it this week on Amazon, who've got the 2K restored version from a few years ago. And one thing that stood out for me this time was the sound, the sound mix from the music, which is kind of scratchy at times, to eerie background sounds. Everything is layered to unnerve and fill every aspect of the environments that you're thrown in as an audience. And it's the sound effects that really elevated the tension in me. It really made me start to chill. And this is a film that you say that it's one of the scariest films that you've ever seen. And the more that I watch it, the more scared I get by it because the more I find to immerse myself into it. It's such a great example of low-budget filmmaking. And to have such a huge influence, you've mentioned the um, social commentary of race issues that were kind of in here. Don't want to actually touch on it because even though it's 50 years old, I don't want to spoil it, like you said, by revealing some of the aspects of the film, but the rest of the series all went on to tackle social or political issues as underlying themes behind everything else. The second film, Dawn of the Dead, was consumerism. The third film was military experimentation and uh, military intelligence. The fourth film was uh, a corporate an attack on corporate culture. Romero cleverly uses a horror genre to convey important messages of the times at which he makes the films absolutely brilliant film that led on to an absolutely brilliant series of films so if you've not had chance to see night of the living dead and if you want to see it then you can see it on amazon prime as andy said there are a couple of versions out there which there was a re-edited version completely avoid go back to the romero classic because it is just that an absolute classic on to our reviews, and with the most tenuous link possible, we're going to open up with the fantastic, I'm giving it away, Mitchells versus the Machines, because I think there's a George A. Romero slight homage, even in that film. I canceled your plane ticket to college. You what? We are going to drive cross-country as a family. Mom? We love his initiative. Right? Uh, every kid leaves home. It's not the end of the world. What the? It's the robot apocalypse. Were the last people left? Katie, we're gonna get through this together. I love that. Who knew you could handle yourself so well in the apocalypse? I'm a first grade teacher. This is like a normal day for me. The Mitchells versus the Machines, rated PG. Andy, talk us through what I think is one of the best animated films I've seen in years. So, produced by Lord and Miller and written by Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe. Uh, with Ryanda directing the film, Mitchells versus the Machines sees a dysfunctional family on a road trip to drop the eldest daughter off at college when a tech uprising against humanity ar- arrives. Somehow, the Mitchells manage to avoid capture, and with two malfunctioning robot companions, are mankind's only hope if they can only just stop arguing with each other. This is an 
absolute treat of a film. This is the kind of film that I will keep going back to over and over again because it's packed with so much going on, not just from zaniness, but from emotional core. For those who aren't, aren't aware of um, Lord and Miller's work, we're talking Cloudy with a Ch Chance of Meatballs. We're talking Spider-Verse. We're talking that kind of zany fun. Yeah, don't forget the Lego movie. Oh, let's not forget the Lego that. movie. Uh, the visual art style of this film has a very cloudy kind of cartoony look with a touch of Spider-Verse sketch art to it. Lines and shadows on faces, pop art, video stickers effects, overlays to emphasize moments. And it looks frame by frame utterly detailed and utterly sumptuous and when i say utterly detailed the animators were clearly having a field day because they have packed every frame with little nods little references and little tiny nuggets of details that are blinking you'll miss them get ready with that pause button when you go back for a rewatch from the simple robot designs to the magnificence of the holding cells where the humans are getting all stacked to be shot into space. This is a film packed with detail that bears that repeat viewing. It, it, it's, it is an absolute joy. You know, the blend of 2D uh, and 3D textures that, that just enhance the images. You know, we've got, as you said, those little cartoonish doodles that spill over, giving you the characters' emotions and their thoughts. It, it, it's hyperkinetic. It's, it's, it's hyper-cinematic in the same way that, that uh, Into the Spider-Verse was. And it's got a central concept, which is at times nuts and, and absolutely crazy. But laugh out loud, funny. I mean, crying in your seat funny in a way that a good comedy has not made me do for so long. I mean, you've got a, a, a fantastic cast, which includes uh, Danny McBride, Maya Rudolph, and believe it or not, uh, Olivia Coleman as a talking AI uh, phone, which is just brilliant. And it also, because it's got such a smart script to it, which says an awful lot ab about social uh, social media. There's there's one scene where uh, the dad character asks them all to put down their phones, and it's the longest 10 seconds that they've ever been filmed, I think. But it says something about social media. It says something about the rise of technology. And it's done something that a lot of animated films a fallen foul of recently, which is making the, the nemesis uh, somehow redeemable. And this film doesn't do that. It, it, it plays it out perfectly. In fact, pulls the rug from underneath you when it's thinking it's going to go down a much more familiar, uh, a much more familiar route. It is just one of the funniest, uh, well-visualized films I have seen in an awful long time. I mean, anything Miller and Lord touch brings something absolutely unique to it. But, you know, it is, I'll, I'll never get out of my head uh, the original Furby using phrases like, let the dark harvest begin. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the pop culture references scattered throughout are marvellous. There's even Tarantino nods embedded within there. And yes, homages there to a variety of films. Even Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive gets a little bit of a looking in there, which I, I have to smile at. It, <laughs> the film keeps... It's packed with so much that it could have overwhelmed and it could have lost momentum, but no, it has an energy that carries it from start to finish, and it's the emotional core energy that carries it through. You are embedded in the life of this family, this dysfunctional family, and a lot of that has to go down to the marvellous script that you've already mentioned. You know, they, they give their characters so much personality that it is extremely easy to care for not only the perilous predicaments they're in, but their own emotional baggage. And this is where it all stands tall. The core of the story is about dreams, ambitions, past mistakes, personal sacrifices for other people. It's a marvellously crafted tale. Normally, you look at an animated film and you look at the runtime, and if it's over 90 minutes, you go, oh, no, that's going to outstay its welcome. But if anything, at almost two hours, this could have done with even more. I'd have been happy to sit for another two hours and continue watching it because I was having such a joyous time. We sat and watched it as a whole family, and this is rare. We, I've mentioned this a few times, that most of the time when we're watching films, it's me, the wife, and the daughter. But no, two sons were involved this time, and all of us were creasing with laughter. I'm just going to say, you know, for the best comedy moments, without spoiling the moments themselves, an army of dustbots, and also dog pig. That's all that I'm saying, and if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm giggling and now. I'm giggling now <laughs> by that, those references. But absolutely 
it hits the nail perfectly with the humour for the first time round. And I'm sure I've missed so much more because I was enjoying it so much that on my second time round, I'm going to be laughing at even more things. I can't wait to revisit this one. It is that rare thing. It's thrilling. It is a proper family movie because there is something in there for everyone to enjoy. And the visual style is is just superb, a beautiful looking film, as well as probably the most fun I've had with a film in a long time. Excellent. And also, I think the dad looks like you. (laughs) Netflix snapped up an absolute gem of a film here. Um, As a quick side note on this, if you're on Twitter, seek out Mike Rianda's Twitter feed and get following him because he provides a lot of insight into the creative process of this film. And he did a a watch party with it a few days ago where, as it got to different scenes, he'd point out little, little nuggets of information, including, like I've mentioned at the top end of this review, the freedom that the animators had to express themselves throughout. And you will get to see exactly what level of detail there are in the background of every moment. Brilliant stuff. This week is an absolute rarity. Not only have I seen one film that Andy's reviewing, I've seen two films that we're going to review. And it it was a film that I skated around for a, a good bit of time before I, I started watching it. Because it's all over the Oscars. You can't have missed that this year's big winner is Nomadland. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. I know. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. So briefly, after losing her job in a a gypsum mine in Empire, Nevada, having worked there for for most of her life, uh, Widowed Fern, played marvelously by Frances McDormand, puts all of her life, all her belongings into a small van and travels the American West, working odd jobs, sharing experiences with other fellow nomads who live on the fringes of what we would consider to be conventional society. I thought this was going to be a hard work film. The first 15 minutes, I, I, I almost dreaded sitting, sitting it out for another hour and a half. But once it kicked in, once those fears of it being a very dull, almost uh, uh, antisocial film rather than a social film, I found my entry point into it and was, was greatly, greatly impressed by one of the, again, one of the most beautiful looking films I've seen in an awful long time. Andy, what was your take on Nomadland? Nomadland is a film that looks great. It's beautifully shot. Chloe Zhao certainly knows how to direct and she gets some generally good use out of location and her cast. But I couldn't connect to the film. The material felt somewhat off and there's multiple things that kind of jar against me on this. First of all, the film is set in 2011 which is probably a wise move because the culture and the people that it focuses on are probably the kind of people who would have been wearing MAGA hats had it been set after 2016 because it, these were the disenfranchised that Trump manipulated in order to get support. But being set in 2011, it suffers from a slight problem in the way it represents one company known as Amazon. And it seems at points in this film that it is an, an advert for Amazon. It goes on with mentions about how they pay really great. It's ideal for seasonal work. She can raise her money there. In this really high-tech warehouse that wouldn't have existed in 2011, in fact, that's probably only from the past two years that they've looked like that. And it makes it feel kind of, what are you trying to do? Are you setting it in 2011? Are you trying to set it in a modern-day thing? Did the political thing stop her from making it more modern-day? And she felt that she had to make it 2011 so that it didn't tackle the Trump issue. And... It tries also to blur the lines between fiction and documentary. The the film was adapted from a non-fiction book. And in doing so, she's cast a couple of nomads as themselves within it. And so at times it feels like a documentary rather than a fictional work. And I don't think it balances that well enough. It's like we're supposed to be following this fictional life, but then all of a sudden, oh, here's the reality. And 
what are you trying to tell us here? It just didn't gel for me. It It's not a bad film. I think it was interesting to watch. It just didn't connect with me on any particularly special level. It's interesting, you know, and, and we've, we've always appreciated each other's point of view and always will. I, I, I must admit, I, I sat there thinking I have to watch this because I think it's worthy. Um, worthy because it, it won Best Oscar and, and therefore we I should be watching this. It took my, you know, it took a couple of viewings to be able to say, this is what we're going to watch tonight. And as I said at the, the top end of this, even after 15 minutes, it was still looking touch and go whether I enjoyed it. I don't know what I connected with with this film. Uh, not a lot, an awful lot happens. It, it's very episodic and therefore with, with which basically uh, the, the movie is vignettes. There was something that touched me in it there's the line where and Frances McDormand is just one of those actors that I can watch uh, time and time again. She just has such a unique screen presence, uh, uh, just a, a soulful screen presence in, in everything that she's doing. Three Billboards Out of Missouri is, is again, a, just a proof that she is just such an... I, I mean, I know she gets the Oscar plaudit, but most people wouldn't know her, and she's just... a. a an exquisite screen presence, as, as simple as that. She has a, an aura to and something about her which is incredibly naturalistic. But there's a line that she says when, when she rejects the offer of a roof over her head and she says, I'm not homeless, I'm just houseless and that's not the same thing. I don't, and I've been being told not to worry about her. And there was something that connected with me and I think the fact, and we've just come out of this awful pandemic, or, you know, we're, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. And there were, there, there were moments in that when... I wasn't working and I wasn't furloughed and, and I worried. I worried about what kind of world I was going to I was going to end up in. And 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 that opened up something within me. And I, I during the pandemic I've seen some of the best and worst in humanity. I've seen people who've been selfish and people who have been mean to each other in a way that at first you hoped this would be a slap in the face and a lesson to everyone. But the the people she meets upon this journey were genuinely kind. And I liked that. I liked the fact that people reached out, that for everything that's going on in the world, there, there is a sub-community of people who be kind to each other. And the majority of the, the people that she met were kind to her. Uh, and, and, and that touched me. And it touched me in a way that, that uh, I, I found quite emotional at times. Uh, I, I did mention that it's an absolutely beautiful looking film. And it is. Uh, and it's, it's, it's well played. Uh, from uh, right across the board, it was great to see uh, David Strathairn again. I've not seen him in a, in anything, and again, he he's a, a low key actor that that just when he's on screen has got a, a great screen presence. I don't know why I liked it as much as I did. I think maybe that's the the interesting issue with this film because it it can turn people off. There is a touch of sort of Terence Malick about it, but it's a film about survival and 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 a survival and seeing people do kind things to each other and, and, and that I, I found myself getting involved in and I found that was was what elevated it from being an interesting film into a into a into a very good film I won't use the word great film because I don't think it is a great film I think it's a very good film uh, whether it's the best of the year I don't know but there is something very very good and very rewarding about it and it makes me very interested to see where uh, Zoe Zhao is going to do with The Eternals because it is just one of the most sumptuous looking films I've seen in a long time. So another film that I've caught this week, which landed on Amazon and it's one of Amazon's original films. Uh, they're clearly wanting to tap into more of that Tom Clancy goodness that Jack Ryan's worked so well for them. And so we got Tom Clancy's Without Remorse starring Michael B. Jordan as the character John Clark, who's another character from the Tom Clancy novels who feeds through multiple stories. This film is planned clearly as an origin story for the character and a hopeful franchise starter, but unfortunately, it lacks something. The story is that his wife and unborn child are killed as a revenge attack after a spec ops mission he served on was completed. Clark goes rogue to seek retribution against those who took his life away from him. What we get is a generic special forces political revenge thriller by numbers. Jordan is stunning in the role and he could be a great lead actor if this was a franchise, but the material around him significantly bogs it down. I've never read the books that it's drawn from, but I've been told by someone who has that this does not do the books of them any justice at all, which right. is a shame 
because Amazon have done so well, like I said, with the Jack Ryan character on the TV series. There's no reason why they shouldn't get other Clancy material to follow suit. But if this is what they're hoping to get a franchise with, I don't think it's going to pan out for them. Great actor in a lead role. Rest of it, very, very generic. Instantly forgettable. I couldn't tell you much about what happened in the film five minutes after I finished watching it because I was just watching events play out in that manner that you've seen done hundreds and hundreds of times before. Thankfully, Andy, you talked me out of that one. And I kind of just, I kind of got that impression just by looking at the trailer. Uh, is there anything coming up on streaming services in the next couple of weeks before we get back into the cinemas on the 17th? Sky this weekend uh, finally get Tenet for those who've not got round to seeing Christopher Nolan's time-manipulating film from last year that was all the fuss. Um, is it going to save cinema? It's a bit late for that, isn't it? Um, over on Netflix, however, there's two Netflix originals, Milestone and Monster, uh, which are probably worth checking out. But what I'm excited about, more than anything, is Jupiter's Legacy Season 1 lands on Netflix this weekend. That's adapted from the Mark Miller comics. It's another one that takes a different look at superheroes in a kind of semi-realistic world. If it's even half the story that the comic book was, this is going to be something special to watch this week. Yeah, count me in on for that one. I, I did read the books. Looking forward to seeing this. So far, I've only seen the trailer, but the production stills have looked as though they've captured Definitely captured the essence of, uh, of Mark Miller's, um, Miller's comic. Well, that's about it for this week. Before we go, as ever, Andy and I will tell you about our neat things. Impressed? You will be. Our neat things are things that we've watched, enjoyed, read, played. Whatever's been a good old thing over the last week is our neat thing. And as ever, Andy goes first. I'm slightly late to the party with this one, but I delved onto Apple TV+. Plus and checked out Mythic Quest this week. Oh, I've seen this and not not have, have been kind of drawn to it. Rob McElhenney and Charlie Day came up with the idea, uh, and those who know who they are will know that they're from um, Always Sunny. Uh, the, get, the idea of the series is it's set in a game studio that has developed the biggest online multiplayer game of all time, and it's tackling the day-to-day -day runnings and the conflicts within the group there. And it is genuinely charming and genuinely funny, and within the first two episodes, I was in and I binged it in a 24-hour period. I binged the whole first season, knowing that season two is only a few weeks away. If you are a fan of video games in any way, shape or form, you will notice a few different tropes getting thrown in there. But you will also embrace the whole behind-the-scenes look at what happens when they're making these games. When their servers get hacked, how do they react? And the comical manner in which the conflict within the team doesn't really help situations. But there's two points in the series, which is 11 episodes, two episodes that stand out significantly in it. There's a midpoint episode that takes a completely different story set in the past with the development of an indie game studio between a couple who meet and have a sim similar idea and create this game genre and how that gets manipulated out of their hands, which was a great standalone episode. And then, as with everything else over this past year, there was a quarantine episode because when they got close to the end of shooting, lockdown hit and they tackle it in what I think is the best lockdown episode of any show that we've had in this past year. It was emotional. It was funny. It used Zoom chat kind of aspect in a really creative and fun way. Give Mythic Quest a try. I'm telling you, two episodes in, you will be embracing the characters and you'll want you'll be racing towards the finish line and hoping for season two to even be half the series that this is. We've said this before. Apple TV Plus doesn't have a lot of content, but pretty much everything that they've delivered has been something special. Mine's also been a binger. Uh, mine is on Disney Plus, uh, originally on Hulu in the States. If you're a fan of Rick and Morty, then this is the perfect cousin. And that's Solar Opposites. It's like Rick and Morty, all the sci-fi sci elements that you'd expect because it's created by Rick and Morty's very own Justin Roiland, who provides the, the voice of, of the lead character in it. So the setup centers around a family, a not a normal family, because one year after escaping the destruction of their planet Schlorp and crashing on Earth, aliens Corvo, his brother-in-law Terry, and Terry's three children, the oldest Yumulak, middle Jesse, and the youngest, the pupa, 
uh, have to adjust to their lives in suburban America. It's got all the elements that you like of, of, of Rick and Morty. It's a very similar uh, visual style. It's outrageously funny, and I am talking outrageous. It doesn't fall under the same kind of censorship restrictions as, as Rick and Morty do because it is packed with explicit humour and really, really foul language, which only makes it somewhat funnier. It's, it's smart, it's funny, it's, of course it's the aliens on Earth element that we've seen before, but it's just, it's just raised to um, a, a different level. And there's a fantastic subplot that runs throughout, of, throughout the series about a group of, of humans that, that um, were shrunk by Yumulike and, and Jesse. And, and they've kind of got their own stories when they live in this place called The Wall which has started out as Escape from New York and has, has, has sort of become this sort of post-apocalyptic world. It's absolutely fantastic, hugely imaginative. I've never quite seen anything like it, uh, and, and that's in a, in a good way. Charming, hilarious, surprisingly sincere, foul <laughs> language, foul uh, <laughs> um, visuals, but well worth the watch, and that is... Solar Opposites, it's on Disney Plus Well Stars because don't sit and watch it with the kids thinking, oh, there's a cartoon about aliens uh, in the first two minutes. You'll be sending those children to bed with having a, a, a unique explanation in some of the interesting words that they used. Absolutely brilliant. My neat thing, Solar Opposites. And that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a new, brand new uh, special episode where I think we might have even got a guest, haven't we, Andy? Hopefully, fingers crossed, we're going to have a guest join us. Wow, it's like somebody's been invited to a party and you're all invited. See you next week, but in the meantime, they're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs>